Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of What Board Christians Talk About. We got a lot of fun things to talk about. Graham, what are they? So today we're going to start off with the question of talking about one, when was Jesus actually born? Both, I think, year and kind of timeline, but then also day or time of year season that he might have been born in. And then we'll move into kind of talking about evangelism and specifically answering the question of, is apologetics even an effective evangelism approach? And if so, if not, what is the best evangelism approach? And what are some kind of good things to keep in mind as far as that's concerned? So that's kind of the plan. But before we get into that, uh, Michael, how was your week? My week was all right. It all was right. Pretty good. Work's just been a lot. But, I mean, it's work. So, I've, I'm realizing um, that I put a lot of purpose into my work. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of my purpose goes into work. And so, when I don't get out of it what I want to, that I, like, I just get really defeated. Mm-hmm. Um because I think I just, I make too much of it. Like, too much of my, my yeah. personality, too much of my value is wrapped up in my work. So it's something that the Lord's been, like, working on. Um, this week was, I think yeah. he was especially putting a finger on it. And so... Maybe you need to take a Sabbath. Maybe I should take a Sabbath. <laughs> maybe I need a couple Sabbaths. Maybe you need a couple Sabbaths. Like in uh, Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. when they suggest a, not just one Sabbath day, but a whole Sabbath year you know maybe you need a caribbean sabbath yeah a whole know? cruise a whole cruise yeah sounds good to me there you go what about you how was your week Graham? it's been pretty good it's been very full so it's it's stayed very busy one day this last week i was up for 23 hours straight which i don't think i have done since high school are you gonna that tell the podcast crazy. why you know, I didn't want to because it's a little bit embarrassing. Well, I already opened up about my week, so, so it's time I to guess open that's up about true. Yours. I guess I should be vulnerable. Um, people are going to judge me for this, but I went to a Taylor Swift concert with some friends in Nashville, and we wanted to make the most of the trip because we didn't want to drive all the way to Nashville just for Taylor Swift because that would be dumb. So we got up really early, set our alarms for five in the morning, and we spent most of the day in Nashville before the concert, and then we spent most of the day in Nashville the next day before we headed home. But the concert ended up having an almost four-hour lightning delay, and her set was three and a half hours. And there's a loss of an hour going to Nashville Mm -hmm. as well. So by the time everything was said and done, it was really crazy. We didn't get back to our hotel and go to sleep until it was 3 a.m., which would have been 4 a.m. our time. And so it was 23 hours straight that we were awake for without sleeping at all. And so that that was just a lot. And then I also did, I I know I talked about it last time in the last episode that I was moving out, and I am officially moved out now. I spent two nights in the new place. So that's just been a lot. It's been very busy, but very good. It's been a lot of good busy things that have been exciting and fun. So all in all, I'd say scale of 1 to 10, probably like an 8 week for me. Sweet. But um, yeah, please don't judge me too harshly <laughs> for going to a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, you got to judge where judgment is necessary. That is true. I will say in my defense, though, too, because I know a lot of people are kind of aware at how expensive it is to go to a Taylor Swift concert. And I do want people to know that there's absolutely no way I would pay that much money to go to a Taylor Swift concert. We got we got our tickets pretty cheap as far as concerts are concerned. We were one of the lucky ones that got in in advance and we paid, I think, like 70 bucks Mm -hmm. for our ticket. Um, which I've paid more for other artists that I like more. Yeah. You know? I saw on Facebook this week somebody um, tried to sell their contacts. I saw that too. Yeah. Somebody tried, <laughs> I think maybe because a mutual friend posted, but yeah. Uh, somebody tried to sell their contacts that have seen a Taylor Swift concert. As if they recorded it. And they were trying to sell them for $10,000. That's ridiculous. The following that she has is insane. The girl literally sitting right in front of us 
So the tickets should have been the same price. And our seats, keep in mind, they were actually kind of behind the stage mm-hmm. a little bit. And they're nosebleeds. So it wasn't the best seats. But still, $70 isn't bad for a concert. The girl right in front of us, who basically has the same seats as us, paid $600 for her ticket. That's crazy. I can't imagine loving any artist enough that I would want to pay $600 to see them. Yeah. No matter how rich I get, too. Like, I hope that I'm never so rich that I forget that $600 is more than any talent deserves Yeah, to pay to watch them. You know what yeah. I mean? I think um, even if Jesus were like, hey, I'm going to do a one-day <laughs> tour, and I'm going to hit this stadium near you, <laughs> but it's going to be 600 bucks to be like, I mean, I got the Holy Spirit in me. I don't I don't need to spend my six hundred dollars on that. Hot take, man. That's crazy. Because I feel like I would, I would want to go. I mean, I was one of the crazy people that drove up to Asbury to see what was going mm-hmm. on, and I got a lot of the same response of like, you know, you don't have to go to Asbury to receive the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm like, okay, yes, I'm not going there because I don't have the Holy Spirit and I want to get Him. <laughs> I'm <laughs> going there because I want to see what God is doing. Yeah. So, and he was doing a cool thing specifically. What if there. Jesus wasn't doing a cool thing, though? If like, what, just, if, like, what if it was literally like Jesus is just sitting there? He doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything, but he just sits there. Just to see Jesus in the flesh. Yeah, like just to see Jesus in the flesh. Man, that would that would be so cool. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're supposed to look forward to, mm-hmm. is the thing. is and, and like I've heard you talk about it at Homestead, of mm-hmm. seeing him will be like him. Yeah. So to see Jesus and have that, that opportunity to, to see him in the flesh. Yeah. I'd be like one of the ones that I'm selling everything I have and trying to do everything I can to get there. But I understand your point. Even if, even if, because you like grand scheme of things, you know, it's like a few days and you'll be with him forever in the flesh. Yeah. So like, do you think Jesus would appreciate you spending that much money? He probably, that's, that's true. I mean, there's probably a reason why he's not doing that, right? Yeah. Why he's not coming down and doing a one-day concert on a stage or <laughs> not concert or whatever, you know? He plays the bassoon. <laughs> I like to imagine him playing the didgeridoo. Yeah. Just <laughs> Jesus playing the didgeridoo. That can be the next thing we put be... on, the, yeah. on the board. But I can, I can understand and appreciate the... Well, I've got Jesus in my heart, and I'm going to be with him before you know it. And in reality, Jesus probably would rather you spend the money, like, doing what James talks about, the pure and undefiled religion, Mm -hmm. taking care of the widows and orphans in their distress, and also, like, helping the body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that money would be far better spent there. But, yeah, I mean, just being honest, I'm not even saying I should spend the money to go see Jesus (laughs) if he was Mm -hmm. live on stage for a day. I'm just saying that I probably would. <laughs> yeah. Maybe what you should do is you should spend spend the money on the ticket, give the ticket to a widow or an orphan, and then you can lay up extra treasure in heaven. And what if I buy one for myself and for the widow and I take them with me? Because that ticket that you're using could go to another orphan. But I could share the gospel with them. Or Jesus could share the gospel with them. That is true true uh, anyway I don't know I mean because there was also the Mary anointed um, Jesus's whatever feet hair I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was I think it was his feet feet yes with the expensive ointment mm-hmm. and they were like why are you spending all of this money on anointing Jesus we could give this to the poor and Jesus yeah. is like no she's been she's right to do this for me yeah and it's like she's doing a good thing and also Mary going and sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha's doing all the things. Mm-hmm. Like, all the things are good, but it's better to go and stay at Jesus' feet. So maybe he would appreciate spending the money to go and sit at his feet, literally. It's possible, but I would rather be self-righteous and say that it, you shouldn't and that, yeah. I, and that I wouldn't. Talk about what bored Christians talk about, though. It's like hypothetical situation that's definitely not going to happen. Yeah. You know? So... <laughs> But it could, you know, you just never know. Life is crazy. I guess so. Uh, with the first question, though, we have, moving on to that, talking about um, this idea of 
when was Jesus born? Mm-hmm. When was Jesus actually born? Because people debate about it a lot. But the good news that I have for our listeners is that I've done some study and mm-hmm. looking into it and stuff. And I think I have a pretty definitive answer that okay. will settle the issue once and for all that I can, I can give to our listeners. Wow. You want to hear it? Yeah. I can confidently say after study that Jesus was definitely born roughly 2,000 years ago. Definitive. Definitive. Put it in the creed. Put it in the creed, dude. Put it in the Put creed. Put it in the creed. <laughs> With the giraffes, the pocket-sized giraffes. And that, the... Yeah, pocket-sized giraffes. We're taking out Jesus descending to hell. We're putting in the pocket-sized giraffes. We're putting in that he was born 2,000 years ago. Yeah. But Just it's going to stay at 2,000 years. So yeah. then in like 3, another 2,000 years. years. No, it's still going to say that he was born 2,000 years ago. Yep. Maybe this Creed thing for the podcast isn't the best idea we've ever had. Definitely, I mean, definitely a tablespoon of salt idea for sure. That's right. But people do people do talk about it a lot, which is kind of funny to me. I think the reason that people talk about it sometimes is because we really like to think that he was born on December 25th. Mm-hmm. And we like to think of December 25th as Jesus' <clears throat> birthday. But in actuality, like there's, uh, I'd say there's a solid one in 365 <laughs> chance mm-hmm. that it was actually on December 25th. I mean, I didn't even really know people were talking about it, so... Yeah. There you go. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Bored Christians talk about a lot of silly things. Yeah. And that's why this is the opening question, too, because it really doesn't carry any weight. Right. As far as a timeline goes, I think most scholars agree on somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., mm-hmm. which is kind of funny when you think about the fact that B.C. means before Christ. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was born about four to six years before himself, yeah. according to that. But that's because some of the, the earlier timelines that people used were off by a little bit. And mm-hmm. it's hard to pinpoint an exact year even mm-hmm. that Jesus was born. But roughly around that time. And then as far as what season, because we can kind of speculate and guess. Some people say that almost definitely it wouldn't have been in the winter. Almost mm-hmm. definitely it wouldn't have been in December because there were shepherds in the field mm-hmm. watching over mm-hmm. the sheep. One, it would have been colder in the winter months, and the sheep also wouldn't have been grazing in the field because there wouldn't have been as mm-hmm. much growth in the winter months, and they probably would have been being fed um, back where they were kept. The arguments against that say that, well, it doesn't really get cold. Mm-hmm. In Bethlehem at that time, in the winter, I mean, and you can go, we'll be going to Israel in a year, in 2024, around Christmas time, and it's not supposed to be very cold. Mm-hmm. So that argument doesn't hold a ton of weight, um, I don't think. But a lot of people do speculate that it was probably more close, closer to the spring than a December time frame. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it just really doesn't carry that much weight. That's very interesting. The year, I think, is is interesting that it yeah. it's, it's moved around so much. So it's not really a part of the conversation, but... I could never remember what BC and mm-hmm. AD stood for, but I don't. It's not before Christ, is it? It's it's like a weird. BC stands for before Christ, and AD stands for. I forget. I, I forget. I'll butcher the pronunciation. Like a weird try. Latin it's thing. a Latin phrase that means year of our Lord. Okay. So that's the thinking behind. It's like before Christ, and then after Christ is the year of our Lord. Yeah. So that's what it means, but they've actually recently changed that to where right. now most secular historians want to say BCE mm-hmm. and ACE, meaning before Common Era and after Common Era. Right. Um, which I think is kind of funny that they're actually adding a letter, and even if it's on a minimal scale, making it more complicated just to take Christ out mm-hmm. of it. Like they do not want Jesus to be a part of our. Yeah historical dating system. Yeah. You know? It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, because you can't blame them because for all of history to be centered around this one figure, even if they don't say he's God or even if you don't say he is who he says he is, to be like, well, but our all of our calendar is around him, but he's not important. You know, he was just a guy, but yeah. all of our calendar surrounds him. Uh, on either side, and so I, I can understand why they would want to. They don't like that very much. Yeah, I can understand why they would want to change that. 
I always thought it was before Christ and after death. Interesting. But that's not really true because Jesus isn't dead. Yeah, he's he's not dead. That's very true. Yeah, it's supposed to be the Latin phrase for year of our Lord, but it is interesting that they want to take that away. It's it's really fascinating when you start looking at the impact that Jesus has had on history, whether you believe in him or not. One of the most fascinating things is that there are so many people that try to deny he existed altogether. There aren't many, but there are secular historians that try to deny the existence of Jesus altogether and say that he was fabricated by the church, basically. But there's so much evidence that he did exist. And like we just said, I mean, even our dating system is based around that. He affected history in such a way that he can't really be ignored, Mm -hmm. even by other religions. Other religions still have to acknowledge him as well. And I was watching a reel on Instagram or Facebook or something that my brother sent me where this guy basically came to faith in Jesus through rationalizing and just thinking it through. And he had kind of explored all these religions. And he was like, well, Buddhism says Jesus is a way and that he's a good teacher. And Islam says that that Jesus is cool and that he's a good prophet. And all of these other religions that I walked through, they all said, yeah, Jesus is a way. He's a good prophet. Um, But here's our way. And so then you go to Jesus and he says, I'm the only way. Mm -hmm. And his rationalization was basically, well, hey, if all of the other religions say that this guy is cool and this is like one of the only things that all the religions agree on is that this guy's cool and this guy says he's the only way. Probably follow that guy. That's really interesting. Yeah, I know. I think it's cool, though. Like, you know, it's silly that people talk about all of the the, the things like that um, with whether or not Jesus was born in December. And there are so much weight, so much weightier things that we could be talking about. Like evangelism, you know, and that's one of the things that we want to kind of do with this podcast is have some fun, silly things that mm-hmm. we talk about that don't carry much weight. Like, when was Jesus born? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? But then also talk about some things that maybe aren't salvific, but they carry a little bit more weight. And I definitely think the topic of evangelism and whether or not apologetics is a good approach is something that carries a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So with that question, is apologetics and an effective approach to evangelism. Valid question. What are your thoughts, Michael? Well, I think, sure. I mean, it's effective. I mean, is it the most effective? Who knows? But, I mean, even, like, the guy that you just described came to Christ through just a rationalizing and, and a thinking, a logical thinking himself into it by looking at other religions and saying, well, they say this and they say this, that lines up with this. You know, that... That's, in some senses, that is apologetics, and it worked for him. It's a weird thing, but that's that's what he needed to meet with the Lord, was to hear those truths. And I know a lot of people that are really logical thinkers that need to have that kind of evidence, I guess. And I think that's completely understandable. So I think it's effective, but I don't think it's effective for everybody, because I really think it's more so, this is going to sound really... Um, as if the Holy Spirit does not play a part. But some people are just, that's their personality. They just need to hear kind of the the logic laid out for them. And so to say, it's just all faith. And you should just take out everything with faith. It's all you need is faith. That can be really confusing for somebody that's logical. And it can be really unhelpful to say that to them. I do think apologetics has its place. Um, but I don't think it is the, I wouldn't say it's the most effective because like I said, I think there's just a specific group of people that, that want to and need to hear that, that style of, of evangelism, of sharing who the Lord is, who God is and what his heart is. I agree. And I think one thing that would be good to clarify too, that I didn't think of at first is what does apologetics even mean? Because there may be people listening that aren't even familiar with that phrase and that mm. term. Apologetics sounds like apology, and that's not so much what it means. It doesn't mean we're apologizing for our faith. Basically, it means giving an answer. Mm-hmm. It's giving a defense of something. And when you think of famous apologists and like, well, in what ways has apologetics been effective? 
One of the first that comes to mind is Answers in Genesis. Obviously, they have mm-hmm. a very effective ministry, and they have the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, which is really awesome to go to. And they've had a very effective ministry with apologetics. I also think of C.S. Lewis. I consider C.S. Lewis to be one of the greatest apologists because he kind of reached people through a lot of reasoning and philosophy and logical arguments. And that's kind of apologetics as well, that mm-hmm. he's he's reasoning through these things and helping, helping other people to reason through them as well. Um, a less popular example would be Ravi Zacharias. Mm. Obviously, he had a, a he did not finish well, and his reputation um, sadly was was not good at the end of the day. But the Bible is full of stories that did not finish well and mm. did not have a good reputation that God still used, and you can't deny that He used them. And I think the same thing's true of him. He might not have finished well or had a good reputation when things were said and done, but. You can't deny that God used his ministry in a tremendous way. And he was another great apologist where his, you know, his ministry was called Let My People Think. Mm -hmm. And his idea was to reach the intellectual and the people that need help reasoning through this. So there's definitely been some really effective apologists and effective apologetics ministries throughout the years. But like you said, they really more target a specific group of people. So it's not something that is ideal for kingdom growth for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think apologetics is only ever going to be effective for somebody who actually is questioning and actually genuinely, earnestly is looking for answers. Because Mm -hmm. if you're starting from a place of like, I don't believe this and I really don't even want to, apologetics isn't going to fix that. C.S. Lewis is actually probably my first um, introduction to apologetics before I even knew there was a phrase for it because I read Mere Christianity shortly after um, becoming a believer. And that was really helpful for me. Um, But it wasn't really something I needed at the time. It wasn't until later when I had decided, no, I do want to follow Jesus. I do want to take my faith seriously but here's these things that I'm questioning. Here's these things that I, it just, this doesn't line up with this when I look at it. It was the words from mere Christianity that solidified things. But I was already in a place of what I would call like a saving faith. Mm-hmm. But it was, my faith was rocky and it was, I was, I was unsure right. of where I was at. And so I think that's the kind of person that, uh, Evan, that, apologetics can be effective for somebody who maybe they are churched. There's just a disconnect, you know, they're seeing something in the world that they don't, they don't believe lines up with scripture. Like why is there Mm -hmm. evil in the world? You know, well, why is there morality? What makes my morality better than this person's morality? Why do I feel like this person has dignity? Why do I, why do I feel like, you know, certain people deserve respect, even if, they haven't done anything to earn it. What's the difference between me and a primate? What makes me special? And so those are the kinds of questions that if people are genuinely asking those questions, there's good answers for them. Right. Some people ask those questions and they don't actually want to know the answer. They're just being antagonistic. Yeah. Antagonistic or they're, they're closed off. Right. They're just like dull may be the wrong word, but they're just not really looking to get to the bottom of it. They're just yeah. showing showing their hands and saying, oh, I don't know. People that it is really helpful for are those genuine seekers. And I think in those genuine seekers, you have people in the faith that are genuine believers, but they are struggling with some doubts. And apologetics can be a really grounding thing for them. I know it was for me in high school, and I was struggling with some doubts there were some apologetics that were really grounding for me in my faith. I also think that you have some, we forget, but you have some genuine seekers in lost people as well. There are genuine seekers who are atheists and genuine seekers who are agnostics. And the only reason that they identify as atheist or agnostic is because that's where they're at right now with all the information that they have. But they want to know more. They, there are atheists who want to be wrong. Most of the time when we think about atheists, we have a picture in our heads, I think, of this really antagonistic person that's angry at God and angry at Christians. 
and they just are are on a mission to disprove our faith. Like as passionate as we are or as passionate as we should be to share, they're just as passionate about putting a stop to it. But there are genuine seekers among atheists and agnostics and lost people as well. I did want to bring up um, the passage in First Peter three, First Peter three fifteen, because growing up that was the passage that was always used for apologetics, um, and like this is why you should learn how to defend your faith. So First Peter three verse fifteen says, "But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy." ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So most of the time, the only verse that was quoted was 1 Peter 3.15. And it was, be ready always to give an answer for anyone that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. And that was the phrase from that verse that was repeated over and over and over again. And normally, growing up, a lot of the verses that like I heard that were pulled just that one verse out of context, they I grew up and realized, oh, there's more to this passage. There's more to this story than just taking this one verse out of context. This is one of the few examples where even though just the one verse was quoted, I think the, the context was actually kind of good. Mm-hmm. Because this is basically an apologetics context in some ways. He's talking about enduring suffering, right? The verse is right before it. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But, and that's when he goes into the regarding Christ as holy and be ready to give an answer. So there are people that are trying to intimidate Christians. And we're supposed to be ready to give an answer to the people that are trying to intimidate us. And then we're encouraged that if we suffer for doing good, like you're going to suffer no matter what. So it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So the context of that verse is actually being ready to give an answer mm-hmm. to antagonistic people, um, which is very interesting because I think we have to balance that. Jesus talked about not casting our pearls before swine as well. So you do have to know when, like, at what point am I wasting my time? And I think apologetics is better focused on those genuine seekers. But there is also a time that we need to be ready to give it defense of our faith to the antagonistic people that are trying to tear us down. Mm -hmm. Then there's also a time where we need to take Jesus's example of not giving a defense. Mm -hmm. And I think there, because it's funny, you know, that verse, I didn't actually hear that verse until Bible college. So I heard Mm -hmm. that as an adult with no context um, other than just what was on the page. And I never really connected it with apologetics until recently during a conversation that we had to me it was more so why like when people are coming at you and they're asking well, why why are you hopeful why do you feel like this is true those defenses are not about you know well the young earth is possible because of these different you know sedimentary lines and the flood can cause these things to be in these places that's not why i have hope like, I have hope because of Jesus, and I believe Jesus was a real person. Mm-hmm. And so there's apologetics that have to do with that. And I think that's the way I've always read that. I think the weeds, if somebody is really coming at you and questioning, like, this, like, young earth, new earth thing, or they're like, whatever. Is it possible for Noah to fit all of these animals on the boat if they're, you know, full size for these many days? How do you fit the food with the... Like, I think that kind of apologetics, that's so far and so deep in the woods. It's like, that's that has nothing to do with your hope. You have hope because the Bible is true. And so to to point to those things being true, logically true, then it makes sense. Like, I think that's good. Mm-hmm. But I think more often than not, when people are asking those kinds of questions, that might be a good identifier for somebody that you are kind of casting your pearls before swine. Like, somebody asking those kinds of questions may not genuinely want to know or hear about your hope because... They're not even questioning that. You know, does that make sense? It does make sense. 
and I agree. I think I think the balance for me, kind of how I understand it, if you are going into that conversation to try to convince an antagonistic person that they're wrong, you are wasting your time and you are casting your pearls before swine. I think the reason why you give those people an answer isn't even for their benefit. I think of Jesus with the Pharisees. There were a lot of times where the Pharisees were just being buttholes. They were just being antagonistic. And Jesus knew they weren't going to repent, but he still engaged them. And it, I don't think it was so much for the benefit of the Pharisees, but it was the benefit for the, of the people watching that exchange. Mm. Yeah, you're never going to convince this antagonistic person that they're wrong. And maybe if you're talking to them one-on-one, you are wasting your time and casting your pearls before swine. But for the benefit of other Christians watching that are maybe struggling with their faith or other seekers who are listening, I do think it's good that the world sees that we do have some logical, rational Mm. answers, even if those answers never convince the antagonistic Mm. people. And so I think that's that should be the motivation. If you're going to address those antagonistic people, it's from the motivation of hoping that other people see the defense that you've given and the mm-hmm. benefit that they might have. My One of my mentors, uh, William Harden, he likes to, that's the defense that he gives basically for why he gets into arguments with people on Facebook mm. because he gets it all the time. People say, well, why are you doing that? You're never going to convince anybody you're never going to change their mind. Why are you wasting your time engaging in these back and forth conversations on Facebook? And I've received the same criticisms from people. And most of the time, I'm not so much debating with these people on Facebook because I think that I can change their mind. But I know that there are a lot of people reading that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people reading the back and forth exchange because it's entertaining mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. And they're curious about what's being said. And William says the same thing. He's like, that's why I'm doing it, because mm-hmm. of the people that are reading this. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Which, as far as evangelism goes, that is not that far off from things that were happening in the book of Acts, where like it was just pretty common to go to a common common place and and reason out different ideas. I mean, obviously the Greeks loved their reason, loved their logic, mm-hmm. thought very highly of thinking. And mm-hmm. so like they had lecture halls where people would go and, and debate and discuss. And, you know, I mean, half the time, uh, like, well, Peter at Pentecost and Stephen, like they're just reasoning out from the Bible mm-hmm. why Jesus was mm-hmm. the Messiah out in a public place. They just start talking, and it was just pretty common for people to just listen. Now, that may not work now. If you just go out to a street, I mean, even Tad was talking about seeing a street preacher in Greenville and, you know, just kind of thinking, like, maybe that's a waste of time. Is anybody actually listening to that guy? People have been doing that for so long that, like, people just shut their ears off and don't listen. Yeah. But there is a public place, a public forum where people are listening to those conversations and it's on Facebook. It's on social media. It's on social media. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's interesting. It's really not all that different from what, you know, Peter and Paul mm-hmm. and Stephen and all of those guys. Social yeah, media is the new public square where people share ideas and debate. That's right. And then it's, it's interesting. That being said, I'm still not getting on Facebook. But I don't blame you. It's not for everybody, that's for sure. But I do, I do appreciate that aspect of apologetics and it's also important to note that Jesus often used reasonings in his arguments as well I think the reason people might ask why you know is apologetics an effective approach is because they don't like it and they kind of want to throw it out altogether and I would agree that it's not the most effective approach which is why we're going to move in and here in a little bit move into talking about what are some of the best approaches to evangelism but you can't throw it out entirely because that's something that even Jesus modeled. Jesus liked to give logical, rational responses to people. One of the, the favorite reasonings of the day, too, and one that Jesus often used was, well, if this is true, then how much more true is this? Mm. You guys say this, and you have no problem saying this, so why do you get mad that I say that? Mm-hmm. That was Jesus using logical, rational reasoning to make a point. 
I also think of the times where um, Jesus was, they tried to trap Jesus in an argument. Um, responses like, tell me, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. What a response. Yeah. What a good, like, logical, yeah. rational reasoning out. Or is you know? it in, I think it's actually towards the end of his ministry where he's like, um, they they talk about something and then he's like, David says, uh, whatever, to my Lord, my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's like, how can David say to his son, my Lord? And yeah. it's like, from that day on, the Pharisees didn't ask him anything. And everybody, right. and everybody was just like... They eventually gave up because they couldn't what? keep up with Jesus's logical reason. They couldn't keep up with Jesus's apologetics, basically. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite examples, I think, of Jesus using, using like a logical, rational argument has to be when they tried to trap him with the question about taxes. Mm-hmm. And they come and they they kind of flatter him. They butter him up by saying things we would agree with of like, we know that you are a good teacher mm-hmm. and that what you say is true and that you don't care what anybody thinks about you. So tell us, should is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they figure no matter how he answers that question, they can trap him. Mm-hmm. If they say you you should pay, if he says you should pay taxes, they'll be like, oh, he says you're supposed to to pay taxes to Caesar, this evil man, and people hate paying taxes, and we'll get them that way. And if he says you shouldn't, then we'll make we'll make him an enemy of Rome by being like he says you shouldn't pay your taxes, and so they're like we got him. No matter how he answers this question, he's trapped. And the way that Jesus answers that, bring me a coin. Mm-hmm. Whose inscription is on this? Like, whose image is on this? Well, Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Mm. Like, how are you going to argue that? Yeah. You know? And the implication there, too, of, like, this has Caesar's image on it, and that's the logic of why this belongs to Caesar. Well, what then would be considered God's? The thing that has his image on it. Mm -hmm. What has God's image on it? Man. Man, us, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give yourself mm. to God. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, Jesus just, he evades every trap so masterfully. There's no greater apologist than Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> he was the best reasoner. So I just, I love that so much. And I think yeah. that's important to note in why you can't throw out apologetics altogether. Yeah. Like there's a place for rational discussion and debate. And no one did it better than Jesus. Yeah. You outed yourself as a Taylor Swift fan, so I'm going to out myself a little bit. Okay. So I watched Hamilton. Okay. Not that long ago. It was pretty good. I kind of enjoyed it. There was a lot that I couldn't understand because I have a slow brain Mm -hmm. and I understand words very slow. I've watched like 75% of it. It's really long. Yeah. But anyways, I say that to say, as you were describing Jesus and the Pharisees having this battle of logic... Mm-hmm. I've seen that Hamilton and how they do the rap battles between Thomas Jefferson and yeah. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And how good, how funny. Oh, my gosh. Someone has to do this. Like, Jesus's ministry. So, like, The Chosen, Ooh. but a musical. And it's literally every time the Pharisees and Jesus get into it, it's just a rap battle. A rap like battle between the Pharisees mics. and Jesus. Oh, that would be so much fun. I want to see this happen now. If only I could write raps and yeah. music. <laughs> but it's not going to happen. That's such a good me. idea, though. I would love to see that happen. We can call that guy. Who's the guy that did Hamilton? I don't remember. I don't know. Something I he's no got weird idea. name. Kind of sounds like a girl name. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, we should call him. We should him call idea. him and or call Dallas Jenkins and be like, hey, yeah, this is a see if this could be a good crowdfunded project. Like, do Jesus versus the Pharisee rap battles? Yeah, you know, they could try it. And can you imagine if in the middle of the chosen? <laughs> I, I, just, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like, don't judge the chosen. Just let that be its no, thing no, no, and do. No. Think, you can use the same should. actors, okay? Yeah. But make it a separate thing. Make it a bonus feature on the chosen. That would be pretty but great. I don't want to see it in the middle of an episode where they actually get into a rap battle. I don't know, I'm I sorry, they, I'm not I, here I for think it. They should because a lot of people <laughs> would probably watch that. They probably it would, would. It would go viral, maybe. But maybe if you make it a separate thing and that goes like that YouTube video of Jesus versus Pharisee rap battle goes viral, then more people are like, this is funny. I should watch The Chosen. Mm. Who knows? Anyways, unrelated, but 
Yeah. So apologetics, you just described that you think it is a effective form of evangelism, but you're sounding like you don't think it's the effective. No. The most effective. So, yeah, we've talked a lot about the the effectiveness that it does have and where its place is and given a biblical defense for the use of apologetics. But yeah, we've kind of we've kind of already stated it's not the most effective form of evangelism. So what is the most effective form of evangelism? Street preaching. Street preaching. Eh. <laughs> not my favorite. Door um, to door? Not my favorite. Not my favorite. People have germs. Doors are scary. Knocking People on doors are scary. is scary. New places is scary. Then it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of approaches out there, too. Like, there's EE. There's evangelism explosion. Mm-hmm. There's no place left in, like, three circles. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got um, the bridge. That's a common one, too, that I've heard. Two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Uh, Way of the Master. Great comfort. Very um, confrontational. That's mm-hmm. the word. So there's all these different approaches. It's like, okay, well, which one is the most effective? Well, I like to say the evangelism method that is the most effective is the one that you do. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's the one that you do. And we can, uh, I find a lot of the times people arguing about which method is the most effective and which one we should be doing. We can get very judgmental of the way other people do it. Like, I don't think that's effective. I don't like that. I don't think that's good. And that's fine. You're allowed to have an opinion, but I think your opinion only carries weight if you're doing it better. Hmm. That's a hot take. That's my take, at least. I'm like, if you have a better way than my way of evangelizing, than my way of evangelizing, please teach me, and I'll change. But if you're not doing it at all, or you don't have an effective tool for sharing the gospel, then don't come at me. Mm. At least that's kind of my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think that if you're if it gets you to do something, then that's probably the best thing for you. I think I would be a lot more likely to take a group of friends and go to downtown Hendersonville and sit on a corner and just start just start preaching out of the Bible. I think I'd be a lot more likely to do that than door to door just because it's a little more comfortable, believe it or not. But I mean, I'm sure there are some people that don't feel that way. If but you're it doing matter. it, if at you're least doing you're doing it, it. that's good. If you just want to stick a bunch of Bibles in every hotel room on the face of the planet, well, that's pretty cool, too. That could work. And that's the same response, I think, that Paul had as well. Because Paul writes, I believe it's in Romans, when he's imprisoned. You know, there are people that some of them are sharing the gospel with good intentions. And other people are sharing the gospel out of bad intentions, trying to cause me affliction in my imprisonment. But I'm just glad people are sharing the gospel. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care how they're sharing the gospel or what their intentions behind sharing the gospel are. I'm just glad the kingdom's being proclaimed. And that was kind of Paul's Paul's heart towards it. Now, we know, because he said, if anyone preaches another gospel or a false gospel, even if it's an angel, Mm -hmm. let that person be accursed. So that aside, as long as people are genuinely preaching the true message of the kingdom, like, just be glad that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. That was Paul's approach. Yeah. That being said, and I don't know, maybe I should feel bad for this. There has been a time, maybe two, where I've seen tracts, like a stack of tracts in like a Mass General store. Mm -hmm. And I read them, and they were a little too turn and burn. Nothing I would say is unbiblical, Mm -hmm. but something I found unhelpful. And I may have thrown them in the trash can. I've definitely done that as well. I remember one time being in a Walmart bathroom and there was a stack of tracks on top of the toilet paper holder. Mm -hmm. And I went through them and decided which ones were good and which ones weren't. And I left the good ones and I threw out the bad ones. Yeah. Now, maybe that's different in that I'm still leaving tracks. Maybe like maybe it's worse if that's like the it's the only track that I'm throwing Mm -hmm. out and it's kind of good. You know, like at least there's some truth here. But we definitely can get picky and overzealous for things like that. And we need to just be happy that people are actually going out and sharing the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the easy answer. 
Right. Like, that's kind of the cop-out, yep. is that... And it's disappointing, I think, to people to be like, well, what's the most effective approach? And you got people that are excited to hear like, okay, well, what is the most effective approach? And you're just like the one you do. (laughs) You know, it's such an easy cop out answer. Mm -hmm. So to go a little bit deeper into that and provide a little bit more sustenance of an answer. Genuinely, I think what you see in the Bible is that the gospel moves most freely through relationships. We were just at an evangelism or a Great Commission training earlier today, and that was one of the points that was really driven home a lot, Mm -hmm. was that the gospel flows most freely through relationships. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about evangelism, I think the idea that most people have in their heads is either going door to door Mm -hmm. or going and doing street preaching. And that's what we've talked about so far. Mm That's our idea. When we hear we need to evangelize, when we need to do the Great Commission, that's the idea that we have in our heads. But that's not how you see the gospel moving in the New Testament. Sometimes, right? Like Mm -hmm. there were times where Paul went in the public square. Yeah. Jesus's ministry was very out in public. But when you look at the book of Acts... And, and even in the Gospels, you still see more this organic movement of the mm-hmm. Gospel through relationships. We just, as, as a church at Homestead, we're going through the book of John, and you just shared like two weeks ago about how when Jesus first starts his ministry and how some of his disciples came to him. Like, Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter, mm-hmm. okay? And then, then is it... Is it Philip that, go, that Philip goes to Nathaniel? Goes I mean, to Nathaniel. Even, even deeper than that, because John the Baptist had disciples, followers, people mm-hmm. who were with him. They were even in a different town. Yeah, they followed him that far, and he's with his disciples. He says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Jesus walks by, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, interesting." So they go and they talk to Jesus. After talking to Jesus, Andrew goes and tells Simon what he sees. We found the Messiah, and then they go to Philip, and Philip sees that Jesus is with his buddies Andrew and Simon from Bethsaida, right? They're from the same place. Sees that he's with Jesus, and they're like, oh, interesting. So Philip follows Jesus. Then he goes and he tells Nathaniel, and I mean, it just keeps going. Like, it's just not the only way, but it is, seems like, the primary way. Mm -hmm. That it really is just one person telling somebody that they're Mm -hmm. interested in um, at that Great Commission training. I thought it was really interesting. I think if I would have heard this two years ago, I would have thought it cheesy and I would have just ignored it. But it hit home today for some reason that it was like, if I won, if somebody came in and told me, dude, I won, we won the lottery. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I put a, put your name in with me and we just won a billion dollars and we're going to split $500 million each. And I mean, I would be psyched. And I would yeah. go and I would probably find somebody if I, I mean, if I would probably mm-hmm. go tell Savannah or I would go post tell my them. dad, I would go tell my mom. Then eventually you're going to post it on the homestead chat and be like, guys, yeah, we can be a mega church now. We have all the money. We're going to build the youth center We're in gonna the We're going to build the youth the center in the backyard. Field. So it just hit home that it was like, man, I guess that's true. Like, who would I, who would you go to first? Well, you know, that immediately just gives me my, my inner circle. Mm-hmm. And in that inner circle of people right. that I would tell, who isn't a believer? It's probably not going to play out like you just won the lottery where you just run up to him and you're like, oh my gosh, I have the best news ever. Jesus died for you. Like, people are like, well, I, people don't really think that's good news. No right. matter how hard you sell it, people are just going to be like, well, I've heard that okay. before. But yeah. well, like, that hasn't changed my life yet. $500 million would change my life a lot more than Jesus would. I mean, that's what people think. That's what people think. And so it may not play out that way, but for me, it was helpful to show me, well, here's my, here's my inner circle. Here's the people I would go to first. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And then we were also talking about, um, just how quickly kind of that, that multiplication happens Mm -hmm. when, you know, you may go into a town like Jesus, when he sends out the 72, they may go Mm -hmm. out to a town and they could probably just try and just bolt through door to door, knocking each door and saying, oh my gosh, so I have to tell you something really quick. So Jesus died on the cross to save your sin, you know, whatever they were saying. Of course, they would have said yet. that at that point because he hadn't done it. Guys, so the kingdom of God is near to you and, you know, mm-hmm. like, and then they just knock on the next door and then they just, just hit as many I mean, houses as you can. Pieces. Make sure everybody heard this. That's almost what you would expect. <laughs> that's what you would expect. But that's but not like, what Jesus tells them to but do. But 
if you just find the house of peace, like we talked about, mm-hmm. and you knock on that door and they invite you in, you know, they may have an inner circle of five people each. Right. And that math worked out, I think, to 105, you know. Because mm-hmm. the 70 were line. sent out in in groups of two. Right. So, so there's that, 35 there's groups. There's 35 groups. It really quickly... 35 homes. 35 homes. It really quickly can snowball from there. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is convince one home. Mm-hmm. You know, all you have to do is get one home that believes and is excited and is sure. And they have the ability to, in however much time, it can take 10 years and it can take 10 days to tell their whole town. There's just a lot more power in that. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the interesting thing about that for me was that even when you have, because I like this, I've said a lot of times to people who really are big advocates of going door to door, there's one Luke 10 and there's a New Testament full of the gospel spreading through relationships. And the ironic thing to me about using Luke 10 as a passage for going door to door is that Jesus actually instructed them not to go door to door, but to stop and stay in the house of peace when you find it. So like you go door to door until you find the person that receives you and then you stop going door to door. Don't do that anymore Mm -hmm. and stay. So the interesting thing is that even and, and this is also a context where they're they are going into a new place. So they're not sharing with people that they already know. But even when the gospel is spreading through that context and it's not spreading through personal relationships, you're still utilizing the personal relationships. Mm -hmm. So if you're going into a place where you don't know anybody and you don't have any connections, any relationships, no one in your inner circle, and you're starting there to share the gospel and hopefully make disciples and plant churches and that's your goal. Ideally, you don't want to go and tell as many people as you can and hope that some of them come. Mm-hmm. You want to find one person that you build a relationship so that your circle of, of influence and connections is is this big. It's got one person. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that one person, they have a network. They have family. They have friends. And if you can reach them, they can reach their family and friends. So even in the one place in Scripture where they did at least start out going door to door and they weren't sharing the gospel through relationships, they were utilizing the relationships of other people. Mm -hmm. And so you definitely see this biblical principle. It's very clearly established. Like this is how the gospel spreads. It spreads through relationships Mm -hmm. and family, friends, coworkers, people that you already know. Yeah. I was even, I was reading in a book called uh, Reading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and it talks so heavily about um, just our cultures between kind of Western and and Western culture, their Eastern culture, Mm -hmm. being just individualistic and family-oriented, but not necessarily extended family or, you know, close family, but extended family, cousins and distant relatives, people who are your third, fourth cousin. There is a rapport there that they have with each other that you're just never going to have walking in because you're not even related by blood. Mm-hmm. And in America, where we're more individualistic, you can have rapport with people you don't know because maybe you're wearing the right shoes or you have the same interests. You're, at you're the, wearing a you're hat at the same, of the same favorite sports team. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you go to any stadium and... Mm-hmm. For a sporting event, and you immediately have rapport with your buddy next to you because you both have the same color. Keep pounding, t-shirt, go Panthers! You know, and that's not necessarily true in some in more uh, Western cultures, and especially in Jesus's time. You have to find somebody who already has rapport, mm-hmm. and I think that's still true even in America. Like, mm-hmm. even though you can build rapport more easily on an individual level here because of our individualistic culture. You're still going to have, though you have some influence, you're still going to have the most influence by tapping into those personal relationships that people already have Mm -hmm. established. Yeah, because rapport is a hard thing to get, no matter what. Mm -hmm. I mean, Western or Eastern culture, like, there's maybe some places where it's easier and some places where it's harder. But at the end of the day, like, getting somebody to trust you and trust you enough Mm -hmm. to hear you out and trust you enough to hear you out and believe you, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a, that's no small thing. And so instead of trying to build rapport with 
a ton of different people. Um, maybe you just build rapport with a few yeah, people who are close to you. Yeah. And then let them build rapport and the people to that share are close to them. with their inner circle. Right. And I mean, even if you think about like a podcast or a preacher or a sermon uh, series that you really like, you don't necessarily like it because you know the thing. Somebody probably told you about it. If somebody mm-hmm. recommends a podcast to me. Please recommend our podcast. Yeah, if that's how you can share the gospel of what bored Christians talk about. <laughs> the good news is that bored Christians finally have an outlet to talk about. That's the good the news. We need to go and about. proclaim this. Yeah, go find a house of peace. And let them know about the pocket giraffes. Yep. So anyways, I, I just think that's, that's really good. Having uh, those inner circles and sharing with them so that they can have their inner circles and sharing with them. And that's like, it's that's, snowballs. It's snowballs. And that's so much better than the church. Christ's church is so interdependent on each other. That's mm-hmm. how God set up his bride that there are, there's, there's distinctions where there's like apostles and prophets, shepherd evangelists and teachers, you know, not everybody has every gift. Because if you if we all have the same gift, then we don't need each other. And so God gives the body different gifts and different abilities so that we have to rely on each other. And this is just another way that God is interweaving this interdependence. You can't have rapport with every single person in your town. But you can have a rapport with five or six people who have rapport with five or six people. And that quickly becomes millions, mm-hmm. you know, because it spreads out so far. So it's just another way that God is weaving in this beautiful interdependence that human beings, that his bride has to have on each other. Yeah. And if you're if you're not yet convinced on the effectiveness of this, like because we've talked some about the the bibli- how biblical this is that gospel spreads through relationships and we've given some biblical examples we could give more and in theory we've talked about how effective it is because it snowballs and stuff but you can also see biblically how effective it is especially in contrast to today cuz in in our western culture especially in our western christian culture our way of thinking the most effective thing that you can do is have this large event with a popular band and a speaker that draws a big crowd and you offer to feed everybody and then you tell them the gospel and lots of people come to faith in Christ. And we do that and it works to an extent. We Definitely God uses that at least. Mm-hmm. If we're doing something, God's going to use it. And people come to faith in Christ. But consider this. We talked about this earlier in the training today as well. In Acts 19, Paul meets some people that had only heard about John's baptism. They hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And when he explains Jesus and the gospel, they believe and they're baptized. And then Paul begins to disciple them. And it says that he he disciples them in the hall of Tyrannus for about three months. The result of that was that in three years, all of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, had heard the word of the Lord. Now, historians estimate that at that time, all of Asia... Jews and Greeks both would have been on the low end, 8 million on the high end, 15 million. So that's not necessarily how many people believed, but you're talking eight to 15 million people heard the Mm -hmm. word of the Lord in three years in a time period where they don't have phones. They don't have the internet. They don't have cars or planes. Literally they're walking and they're riding horses Mm -hmm. and they're riding uh, chariots or whatever. And this is their only way of getting around. And in that time period, with their limited access to technology, the word of the Lord spread so that in three years, between 8 and 15 million people mm-hmm. heard to the point that they got to go someplace else because all of Asia has heard. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. I guarantee you, Paul and the 12 disciples that he met who formerly followed John, I guarantee you... The, the 13 of them did not knock on 8 to 15 mm-hmm. million doors. Yeah. This happened because this is naturally spreading through relationships. Yeah. This is what Jesus did. This is what he modeled. This is what you see happening all throughout scripture. And, and the gospel flows so freely through relationship that in three years, 8 to 15 million people heard. Mm-hmm. 
Now, for us, in Hendersonville, there's about 100, or Henderson County, there's about 120,000 people. And when the idea was first pitched to me, like, I think it'd be really cool if every single person in Henderson County had heard the gospel. I'm like, well, that's a little grandiose. Hmm. That's that's what my mind thought. Mm-hmm. That's not practical. There's no way we're going to share with that many people. Uh, sorry, but Acts 19, yes, mm-hmm. that many people can hear. And it happens through those relationships. Yeah. I think the caveat is that we like to use that as an excuse to be lazy mm-hmm. and say, oh, the gospel spreads most naturally through relationships, so I don't have to be intentional about sharing. Mm-hmm. I can kind of just be a good witness by being a good person and having good character, and then maybe people will somehow come to Christ mm-hmm. through that. And as long as we, I think that's why we tend not to believe it and why this idea mm-hmm. of the gospel spreading through relationships isn't convincing for a lot of people. And they, they still are on this train of, no, we got to go out and we got to knock on doors and we got to street preach because that's not like just sharing with your lost family is not how the gospel is going to grow. Well, that's because we're not actually sharing right. with the people closest to us. We're just being good. Mm-hmm. And we think our morality somehow is going to bring them mm-hmm. to Christ. But there still has to be some level of intentionality behind going and sharing with those close mm-hmm. enough. And if, we, if we're if we intentional and we soak it in prayer, then sharing with the people you know that are far from God and making disciples there, that is the most effective way to do evangelism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it, it takes the pressure off because the idea of having to go and just share with people I don't even know is, is so much pressure that I immediately am just shut down. Like, I'm not even interested in that. But the thought of telling people that I love something that is exciting, I mean, I do that all the time. Like, I tell people that I care about what's going on in my life all the time. But what if, instead of selecting some of the things that don't include what Jesus is doing in my life. What if instead of not selecting those, I I choose to add those in that like my week was really good for these reasons, because I saw the Lord do this really cool thing. And that's really small. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why it has to be this big deal where you sit them down and you have coffee for two hours and you describe to them from Genesis Mm -hmm. to revelation, why Jesus Christ loves them and died on the cross to save their soul. It doesn't have to be that intense. If you just tell them, what the Lord is actively doing in your life. Hopefully mm-hmm. you're, you're hopefully, they'll st- get hopefully, curious. hopefully your story with Jesus is not just, well, he saved me when I was five and then it's, I don't know. I just, that was it. Like hopefully there, the Lord's been doing things in your life currently that you can talk about that are really exciting, you know, things that really are exciting convincing. and or hard or things you're struggling through that the Lord is being faithful in or mm-hmm. I mean dude the, the list goes on there, there's so many different options and it doesn't have to just be a cold um, heartless Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you to save your mm-hmm. sins do you want to accept Jesus into your heart and pray this prayer with me like no yeah. just just tell the Lord tell people what the Lord is doing and there are ways to steer conversations we already do it with literally everything else in our lives yeah if we want to talk about something, we find a way to work it into a conversation. And yeah. some people are better at it, at it than others. But you can kind of tell, like, when somebody wants to talk about something that happened in their life and they interject and they try to tie it to the thing you were talking mm-hmm. about previously. Like, sometimes you can even make a game out of it. I've done it before. Of Like, let's start talking about this and see if we can work our way to this. Mm-hmm. Like, pick two random objects and see if you can get from one to the other just mm-hmm. conversationally. Yeah. So we all steer conversations anyways. And we can steer conversations, hopefully not too obviously, mm-hmm. um, when we're talking to people about Jesus. And it, and it can happen a lot more organically. But I do think at some point... Again, it doesn't have to be the intense thing like you talked about of sitting down with them and explaining with them for two hours. But at some point, we do have the bold. We do need to have the boldness to actually verbally share the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible does say like, "How will they call on him in whom they have not heard, and how will they hear mm-hmm. without a preacher?" At some point, we have to articulate the plan of salvation to mm-hmm. people, and that might be a little bit awkward. The Bible and the gospel by nature is awkward and offensive Mm -hmm. by nature. And so 
if you're always scared of being awkward, you're never going to get to the place of actually sharing the gospel. And I would argue that if you are able to share the gospel in a way that is really no pressure and really not awkward, it's it's highly possible that you've changed the gospel to such an extent that it's no longer the gospel. Mm. Because that's not how it was shared in the Bible. When it was shared in the Bible, it was offensive. It definitely provoked decision. And people were like, either you were for us or against us. That's kind of like how it was presented too. Mm -hmm. And we want to present it in this really comfortable package. But it was not so much presented in a comfortable Mm -hmm. package back then. Yeah. And another practical thing Mm -hmm. that I'm thinking of even as we're talking Jesus sent out two, right? He sent out a pair. Mm-hmm. And steering conversations can be hard and awkward, and even just, like, jumping in with the good news of salvation can be awkward. Mm-hmm. But I think what can make it a lot less awkward is having a buddy with you. Savannah and I, whether, like, it's hanging out with family or with friends, like, it's so helpful, whether it's spiritual or not, to have somebody else that can help guide the conversation. Savannah and I like talking deep. We don't like small talk. Like, it just gets exhausting after a while. If we're sitting down to have dinner with somebody or, like, inviting somebody over mm-hmm. for lunch, we don't want to just talk about the, the weather. Week, the weather. Like, we want to know what... What bored Christians talk about. Right. Did Jonah <laughs> die in the whale? Like, we want to know, like, real <laughs> things. And so it's hard for me to, by myself, guide those conversations there. But for some reason, having another person to guide those conversations in a more real, more meaningful place is super helpful. I had never thought about the practicality in that sense of why Jesus sent them out two by two. I figured maybe it was accountability, maybe it was safety. I hadn't given a lot of thought to that, but that makes a lot of sense. Cause if you think of going out two to two and you're both kind of going at this person to share something with them, that feels very intimidating. You feel like you're ganged up on, mm-hmm. but if you're going at it from the this idea of we're all having a conversation. I'm really having a conversation with my fellow Christian buddy here. Mm -hmm. And this person doesn't feel attacked because we're also having this conversation. That's a really practical element. There's so many different things. And, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, the most effective is just what you do. Mm -hmm. But one of the most prevalent examples in the Bible is through relationship through those inner circles. Mm-hmm. And if that still scares you, find a buddy to join you in talking with people in your inner circle. Put it in the creed. Put it in the creed, dude. Let's put it in the creed. What are we putting in the creed? How do we word that? Thou shalt share with thine family and thine homies. Family first. Family first, homie second. Safety third. Safety third. (laughs) Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Alrighty. Well, that's a wrap on episode three. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch us, find us on YouTube at What Board Christians Talk About. If you want to listen to us, find us on Spotify and most major podcasting platforms at What Board Christians Talk About. And if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as WBCTA2023. We'll also have a merch store up, and the links to that will be available on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Again, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of What Board Christians Talk About.